Amen. You can be seated. It's so good to see you guys this morning. So good to have you in the house of the Lord. I'm looking around and I'm saying, hmm, it ain't that much longer before we're going back to two services so we can keep social distancing. And I'm excited about that. So glad you're here uh, in person. So glad you're online watching with us this morning uh, as we continue to worship the Lord, celebrate with these folks and get into the word of God. So uh, Pastor Andy just did several of those baptisms. I got to be honest before I, I say that though. One of the exciting things is I saw a bunch of dads doing some baptisms. Is, is, that, is that awesome to see families together? I love it. I had the privilege of baptizing my three sons and so far two of my eight grandchildren. And so I'm just looking for all the rest of them to come uh, to the Lord and come to that place. But uh, so we celebrate with them this morning. But if, but if I were to ask Pastor Andy to come back, he's getting his wet clothes off now. But if I were to ask Pastor Andy to come back and, and I were to say, who are you? How would he answer? He'd probably say, well, I'm Andy Stovall. And I would say, well, no, that's your name. That's the label you go by. Who are you? And he said, well, I'm the, I'm the congregational life pastor at the bridge, Princeton. No, no, that's, that's your calling. That's what you do. That's not who you are. Who are you? Well, I'm a Georgian. No, that's where you're from. That's not who you are. Well, I'm, I'm six foot tall, 200, none of your business pounds. No, that's your, that's your physical dimensions. That's not who you are. Some of you needed to hear that. Hello? Your physical dimensions are not defining of who you are. Who are you? If I ask some of you, who are you? Some of you, if you're being honest and transparent, you, your answer would come from an event that happened in your life, maybe an event long time ago. Well, I'm, I'm a divorcee, or I was robbed, or I was raped, or I was addicted to drugs. And so your identity comes out of something that happened at one point in your life. For others of you, it, it, it's, it's based in the expectations of others. Well, I, you know, I, I'm a mother. What does that mean? Ask my kids. They'll tell you it means whatever they need. That's what it means, you know. Um, I got to be honest, for me, that was it for a very long time, for, for far too many years. My, I, I defined my whole sense of identity by what people expected of me as a pastor. Well, you're a pastor. This is how you should act. You're a pastor. This is how you should dress. My mom, God love her, loved Jesus with all of her heart. She's in heaven now, but she was one of the worst in those early days of accepting a call to, to, to be a pastor. I would get ready to leave the house. She said, oh, you can't go out dressed like that. You're a pastor now. You have to have a coat and tie on because that's what pastors do. A.C. Wheeler is one of the early mentors in my life, uh, pastored for 60 plus years before he went to heaven. Uh, he, he, he was a big man. He probably weighed 400 pounds. And he told me early on, he said, Jim, if you're going to be a pastor, you have to learn to put up a good front. I've been working on mine for about 40 years and I got a pretty good one. <laughs> All that fried chicken, that's right. My pastor told me when I said, how do you know if you're called to preach? He said, well, you love to talk and you love fried chicken. That's a head start. But whatever defines you, here's what I need you to hear. Whatever defines you, however you see yourself, one thing is true. It determines how you act and how you behave and how you react to the events that go on around you. If you see yourself as a loser, you'll act like a loser. If you see yourself as a victim, you'll treat everybody you meet as a potential victimizer. 
If you see yourself as not very creative, you won't attempt to create anything because that's just not who you are. The problem is that huge numbers of people, including fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, base their, their image, their self-image, their own sense of who they are on wrong perceptions, on a flawed image. And therefore, they're never finding that, that abundant life that Jesus promised. They're never finding that fulfilling life that Jesus promised. Is this making sense to anybody? Is this a struggle for any of us? It is. For those of you that are new, we're in a series we're calling uh, Love God with All. And, and, and it's based in a passage of scripture, a very famous from Jesus' life, when they tried to trap him and they asked him hard questions. And, and one time they decided they would trap him by saying, you know, okay, can you sum this whole thing up? They had hundreds of pages to describe what the Ten Commandments meant. And so can you sum this up? And without hesitation, Jesus summed it up very quickly. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. It's on the screens. You can go to the Bridge NC app and follow along with the notes there if you like. Here we go. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And, and then he went on to say, love your neighbors yourself. We'll get into that a little bit later in the year. For now, we're focusing this month on this idea of what does that actually mean? I mean, that makes sense to love God with all, but uh, but what does it actually mean to love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength? Now, three of those are probably pretty easy. Would you agree? Three of those, I mean, I love God with all our heart. We talked about that last week. We're, we're talking about emotions. We're talking about passions. We're talking about what lights your fire. Love God with all that. Let him be your motivator, okay? Next week, we'll be talking about love God with all your mind. Obviously, we're talking about your thought life, the stuff that goes on uh, in, in your mind and your thoughts. So next, the week after that, we'll be talking about all your strength. And of course, your strength is, is your resources, your abilities, your, uh, you know, your influence, all that kind of stuff. We'll be talking about that. But but today we're talking about soul and this idea of loving God with all our soul. Not quite as easy to understand what that means, probably not as commonly known. So it begs the question, how do you love God with all of it when you're not sure what it is? So let me ask you, what's, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word soul? Some people think about soul food, right? Some people think about the sole of your shoe, different spelling. I grew up in an era of soul train. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You remember the Temptations and, and the Supremes and Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Come on. Ain't no mountain high. Come on. You got it. Like the guy who said to his wife, there ain't no, uh, to his girlfriend, there ain't no mountain high enough or valley low enough or ridden, river wide enough to keep me from coming to you. I'll come over Saturday night if it's not raining. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> so what do you think about when you think of soul? Here's what God wants us to think, Genesis Chapter 2, verse 7, from the very beginning in the creation, and God, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living 
soul. That's the Hebrew word in the original manuscripts, nefesh. And nefesh just carries that idea of a living being. God breathed his essence, his image, not his physical image, God's a spirit, but his image of the ability to love and be loved, the ability to reason, to think, the, the ability to have, to, to, to make choices and determinations, that he breathed his life into us and we became a living being. Jesus builds on that definition in Matthew 16. Verse 26, when he says, what good would it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? That Greek word, the New Testament primarily written in Greek, is the word suke. That literally means the essence of who you, who you are, the essence of who you are. Anybody want to guess what English words we get from suke? Anybody want to guess? Psyche? psychology. We're talking about psyching ourselves up. That all comes from that same root word as the Greek word. We're talking about the essence of, of who we are. Psychology is the study of, of, of how we feel and how we behave, right? So let's get back to the opening question. Who are you? And what does that have to do with soul after all? Psyche, hear me. Here's what I want you to get, okay? We'll put it up on the screens. Here we go. We will always struggle. Come on, read it with me. We will always struggle to love God with all our soul as long as we struggle to see ourselves the way God sees us. You will struggle to love God with all of your being until you define your being by how God defines your being. So let me go back to the, my original question, who are you and how did you decide that's who you are? Was it the bully on the third grade playground that defined you? Was it an abusive parent that defined you? Was it an unpleasable parent that defined you? Was it an event that defined you? Or is it what God sees when he sees you, we will continue to struggle to love God with all our being until our being is defined by what God sees when he sees us. So in the few minutes I've got with you today, I just want to make sure you know how God sees you. I'm going to invest just a few minutes kind of helping you to, to evaluate your self-image in light of God's image of you. To do that, we're going to go to the words of a guy who went on this journey, a guy who had a very flawed view of himself and people around him had that view of himself. He was a guy who was constantly putting his foot in his mouth. In fact, sometimes he only opened his mouth to change feet. I mean, he was just one of those guys that was impetuous and getting into trouble all the time. And, and he loved Jesus and Jesus loved him. But every time he turned around, Jesus had to rebuke him again. I mean, he was just one of those guys that really struggled with, with uh, being defined the way Jesus saw him, Jesus eventually at one point said, whoa, whoa, Peter, you're the rock. That statement that I am the Christ, your willingness to confess that, we'll, we'll build the church. I'm going to build the church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. This is who you are, Peter. So we've got a guy who went from living with this kind of flawed self-image and all the stuff that comes with it to the guy who began to see himself the way Jesus saw him, him, and the result is he preached the sermon on that day when the church was born and 3,000 people were baptized 
and the church was launched in the world. So, so he went on the journey that I want us to go on. His name is Peter. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I like the way the message paraphrases it. You're welcome to look it up in your own translation if you like. But keep your thumb in here because we're going to keep coming back to it through the morning. You're the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. Peter's saying to that early church, those early Christians, this is who you are, accept it. This is what God says about who you are. It's time for you to define yourself by that. So we're going to unpack that in some detail this morning. But up front, I just want to make sure you understand three key things that come out of that passage that I want, I want you to go home remembering. You're not going to remember everything I, I say. I mean, my sermons are like manna from heaven. They're fresh and then they rot after 24 hours. You're not going to remember everything I say, but there's three things I want you to remember, okay? And they come out of this passage. One is that God sees you as accepted, not rejected. God sees you as valuable, not worthless. God sees you as forgivable, not damaged goods. You begin to understand how God sees you and you begin to embrace that image of yourself. Then you can finally begin to love him the way he loves you. So let's unpack that. And in the process, my prayer is that, you, that this will begin to sink in and it'll change it. Because let me tell you, I went on this journey a few years ago. And, and it changed everything about me. It changed how I did relationships. It changed how I approached life and ministry. It, it, it changed how I looked in the mirror. And I hope that you'll embrace this. I hope you'll go down this road and let God speak life into you. Let's unpack those three things. Number one, God sees me as acceptable. Say it with me. God sees me as acceptable. One more time. God sees me as acceptable. Now all together. God sees me as acceptable. Now look at somebody and say, God sees you as acceptable. What did he say in First Peter 2? You are the ones chosen by God from rejected to accepted. Let's be honest, guys. We all expend a huge amount of time, energy, money, resources trying to gain acceptance. We find a group we want to be a part of, and then we try to figure out what it is we have to do to be accepted by that group. That's what human beings tend to, to do. So that, that drive is, is powerful. It affects the clothes that we wear. It, it affects the language that we use. It affects the car that we drive and the house that we live in and the career that we choose. Even the nonconformists of the 60s all looked alike and dressed alike and smelled alike. Come on, that's just what we do. Do you agree with me? I mean, do you agree with me? People do the craziest things to be accepted. You get in a group of people and they say, well, do something and it's dangerous or it's crazy. And you go, no, I'm not doing that. And then they say, you, you know what they say? I dare you. I got no choice now. I dare you. We saw a thing in the, in the news some time ago about three guys that went into a warm Walmart in Arkansas and they put on women's underwear and walked out of the store with nothing but the women's underwear on. And of course, they were arrested for shoplifting and indecent exposure and all kinds of stuff. When they got to the police station, the cops asked them, why did you do that? He said, because our friends triple dog dared us. 
Kim and I were talking about that. We just, she, just, she just kind of wondered out loud. So, so did they say, I dare you? And they said, no. And then they said, I dare you. I double dare you. No, I'm not doing it. I triple dare you. No, I triple dog dare you. Okay, I got to. I, mean, I don't know what it is about us, but we need to be accepted by a group of people. That's why one of the most painful memories from childhood is when they're picking teams. And the two captains stand up and start picking teams. Is that painful? Well, unless you're the jock that always got picked first and then we all hated you. So it doesn't matter to you. But for the rest of us, that was painful. It felt like rejection, particularly if we were the last one picked. One of the greatest days of Kim's life was the day I agreed to marry her. I mean, it's just... <laughs> Sorry, darling. <laughs> greatest day of my life other than coming to Christ is the day she finally accepted me. I begged her for months. So the first thing that Peter says, the first thing that Peter says in defining your image, the way God sees you, is you've been chosen by God. You're acceptable to him. Christ accepted you unconditionally. He says, I chose you to be on my team. Now that's huge in developing your own sense of self-worth, self-image, self-identity when you begin to line your self-image up with what he sees about you. In fact, it's one of the reasons that he calls us as followers of Christ to give that kind of acceptance away. People come to our front doors and they say, well, you can belong before you believe. And every now and then we'll go, somebody, what, it doesn't matter what you believe? Of course it matters what you believe. Your beliefs determine your behaviors and your behaviors determine your, your destiny. Of course it matters. We're just saying that we accept you as Christ accepted us. Romans chapter 15, verse 7, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Why do we do that? In order to bring praise to God. So how did Jesus accept you? When you finally got it all right? Oh, heaven forbid. That's not how it works. It's one of the things I love about this place. We heard it in, in the baptism videos today. It's just, you know, a place that I came and I felt accepted. I felt welcome. I felt loved. It felt, I felt at home. Jesus says, I accept you just the way you are. Now give that acceptance away. Hear me. You can accept someone without approving of their lifestyle. Do I need to say that again? You can accept someone without approving of their lifestyle. Accepting it means you love them, you care about them, approving of their lifestyle. Say, yeah, what you're doing is good. Well, what they're doing may not be good. It doesn't mean you can't love them because Jesus loved us. Is this making sense? So it's huge. I mean, it seems so simple, and yet it's so hard for so many of us to make that journey from our heads to our hearts to recognize that's how God views us us. But hear me, you're going to have trouble loving God with all your soul until you get to that place that this truth sinks in. He's the captain of the team and he chose you to be on his team. You begin to see yourself through his loving eyes as a part of God's family. I am acceptable. You ready for the second one? You ready? I can spend some more time on the first one if you want. Got it? Three of you got it. The rest of you don't care. We'll spend some more time. Here we go. Number two is God sees me valuable. God sees me as valuable. Say it with me. God sees me as valuable. One more time. God sees me as valuable. God sees you as valuable. Um, 
If, if I ask you to pull out your phone right now and send me a text and we can somehow put it up on the screen and, and, and the text was in answer to the question, how much are you worth? How many of you, the first thing that popped in your mind was a number? You don't have to respond. The reality is that we often get confused between our value and our valuables and they are not the same thing. Don't ever confuse those two things. So how do you determine value if it's not about valuables? If it's not a number, then how do you determine it? Well, let's look at it in the natural. Maybe we can understand it, okay? I think there are three questions uh, that, that determine the answers of which determine the value of something. Question number one is what is somebody willing to pay for it? Is, is that the bottom line of, of if something's valuable? Is how much somebody willing to pay for it? Kim and I bought a house in Virginia almost 30 years ago now, and we lived in it for many, many years, did a lot of work on it, and uh, we paid $88,000 for it in a foreclosure sale. It was all torn up, messed up, but, but we got it for $88,000. When we left there about five years ago, uh, we had an appraiser look at it, and he came back and said that the house worth, was worth $188,000. That's pretty cool. We met with a realtor, and the realtor said, I, I think somebody will pay $300,000 for it. Part of the problem with the appraisal is there are no sold comparisons. You know, real estate, that's what they look at, and there weren't any. And so she, she said, I, I think somebody will pay $300,000 for it. So what was the house worth? Was it worth... 88,000, 188,000, or 300,000? The answer is what somebody was willing to write a check for. At the end of the day, we got 304,000. So all of them were wrong. Ha! <laughs> That's why Peter came to understand in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 1, you were bought, not with something that ruins like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. So based on that reality, let me ask the question again, how much are you worth? This much. You're worth the blood of the Son of God Himself. That's how much you're worth. That's how much I'm worth. Because that's what somebody, the most important somebody, was willing to pay for us. The second question is who owns it? Right? I mean, would a car owned by Elvis Presley be worth more than the car you drove up in this morning? Yeah. yeah. You ever watch that? Was it Pond Stars? You ever see that Pond Stars show? I was looking at clips the other day and a guy walked in with these beat up old worn out looking pair of tennis shoes and he set them down on the counter and, and, uh, and the, the owner said, what do you want for him? He said, I want $7,000. And he scoffed at him until he produced a picture and documentation that these were shoes worn by Michael Jordan in the NBA playoffs. Suddenly $7,000 doesn't sound too bad because who they were owned by. Look at what the Bible says about us. First Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 23, you have been bought and paid for by Christ, so you belong to him. Bought and paid for. I love the old King James word for that. It's called redeemed. You may not go around saying redeemed a lot, but you guys in my age group, at least, you understand what redeemed. You remember S&H? How many remember S&H green stamps? Come on, let's get a show of hands. God bless that hand. I see that hand, S&H green stamps. And what did you do when you got a book or two or six of these S&H green stamps? You went down to the redemption center 
and turn those stamps in for whatever it is that you wanted. And so let's say that a toaster costs six books of stamps. You got to your six books. You've been buying groceries and collecting your stamps. And some of you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Just work with me for a minute. But then you'd go down to the redemption center and there's a toaster who's held slave and captive to that shelf. And you redeem that toaster from its captivity with six books of stamps. That's what redeemed means. And that's what Jesus did. We were held slave, captive by our own sinfulness. Jesus makes it clear. You, you, you sin and then you become a slave to your sin. Somebody had to redeem us from that slavery. And it cost a whole lot more than six books of S&H green stamps. It cost the blood of Jesus Christ, the very life of Jesus Christ, and he willingly paid it to redeem us. You redeem that toaster, you took it home and you put it on your countertop and you made toast and you said, mm, that's good, taste and see that it's good. Jesus said, I bought you, I paid for you, you are Mine. So how do you determine value? How much somebody's willing to pay for it? Who owns it? Number three, how useful is it? Right? Go back to our key passage, 1 Peter 2 again, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him. So how useful does God see you? He sees you so useful that he's designated you as his ambassador, as, your, as his spokesperson. He's building his kingdom across the world, and he's tapped you and me to be his ambassadors in the building of this kingdom. If you don't understand how huge that is, think with me for just a minute about some of the amazing ways that God is at work around the world. I know if you watch... Hollywood movies and the news and all that kind of stuff, then, then you, if, if you're not guarded about this thing, you'll get the idea that Christianity's dying. And I need to let you know they aren't even close to the truth. Christianity's exploding on the planet. Yeah. He's doing amazing things right here in America. There are churches that are doing phenomenal things. And, and some of them are 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100,000 members of that church. Some of them have 100 and they're changing lives. It's not about how many people show up. It's about the fact that they are real and alive and people are coming to Christ and their families are coming to Christ. Churches like the bridge all across the nation that are doing amazing things for the kingdom. And we get to be a part of what he's doing. So there's something that happens inside of us when we start seeing ourselves as valuable because God says, you are useful to me. I'm building my kingdom and you're a part of it. It takes us beyond the, the, the drudge of what we do for a living. We go to work, we pay the mortgage, we retire and die. It takes us beyond that everyday mundane stuff and say, man, I'm, I'm involved in something that's bigger than me. I learned many years ago that there are two things that every human being on the planet needs. We need to love and be loved, and we need to feel like we're doing something worthwhile with our lives. Jesus said, you come to me, and, and you're valuable to me. You're useful to me. I will give you something worthwhile to do with 
your life. If you were here on the first Sunday of February, you heard the visions that God's put in, in the hearts of our staff and our teams and our board. And if you missed that, go online and go to Vision Sunday and watch that message because the level of excitement that came from this place, what well, you could touch it, you could feel it. The number of people that are doing test driving on serve teams has cranked up a whole nother level just simply because we cast vision for the future. Why is that? Because there's something in us that wants to be a part of something that's bigger than us. Is it true? Sure it is. But it's not just here at the bridge. It's not just in America. Some of the stuff he's doing around the world is just almost mind-boggling. You hear a lot of negative press about Africa. Did you know that 50% of Africa south of the Sahara Desert is Christian now? Yeah, that's worth celebrating. There's a church on the Ivory Coast of Africa that has 500,000 members. They have 60,000 small groups. Let those numbers roll around your head. They have a tent. I haven't seen it, but I've read about it. They have a tent that is one kilometer long and a half kilometer wide for their worship services on the weekend. God is doing amazing things around the world. South Korea, maybe you've heard of, of Cho Young-e's church in, in Seoul. Last account I had, close to a million members. They have so many members now. They have a 25,000-seat auditorium, and they, they do 10 or 11 services every weekend. They have so many members now, so many people coming to Christ in Seoul, Korea. 60% of Seoul, Korea is Christian now. Yeah. They have, they have so many that everybody can't come to church on Sunday, so they broadcast it into their small groups. They meet in their small groups on Sunday, and, and your small group gets to come on the first Sunday, Michael, and your, your, your small group gets to come on the second Sunday, and, and your small group gets to come on the third Sunday, Rick. And so you're, that's how they decide when you get to come to church. The other times you meet in your small group at home and watch it on TV. Man, would I love to reach a harvest like that where we can't build fast enough to hold them all. I got a few amens over here. Man, would I love to see a harvest being gathered so fast that we can't build fast enough to hold them all. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons, yeah, I want to build the kingdom of God, but one of the reasons is when you realize God chose me to be useful in the building of his kingdom and I'm a part of what he's doing in the world. It raises your whole understanding of who you are in Christ and you start to see yourself differently, not defined by the things we started talking about today, things like events that happened or, 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 or painful memories or any of that stuff. You start to be defined by I am acceptable to the God of the universe. I am valuable to the God of the universe, so valuable that he paid whatever it took to buy me back from my own sin. It's so valuable that he paid the very blood of his son, Jesus Christ, so valuable that he put me in the team and said, man, I need you on the team to help accomplish what I'm doing in the world. 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and chose us for what does it say? His holy work. I need you to hear this before I move on. We are not just picked by the captain for our benefit. 
I'm sitting here telling, standing here telling you that, that we benefit from it, but it's not for our benefit. We're picked for the world's benefit. We're valuable to what he's doing in the world. What does it say? He saved us and chose us for our holy work, for our benefit. What does it say? For his holy work. That may not sound like a big deal, but it is. It's a huge deal. It's huge. You have value to God because of his purposes. Now, I probably spent more time on that than I needed to, but I need to make another point before I get to the last descriptor. And that is so often it's hard for us to get down to this is who God made me to be. And he made me on purpose with my personality, with my gifts, with my talents, with my relationships, with my opportunities. He made me to be me and he needs me on his team to accomplish God's work. That may sound simple, but it's incredibly difficult. We look around and we see somebody who sings better than we do or, or teaches better than we do or looks better than we do or has more talent than we have. And we catch ourselves going, man, if only I, if I could sing like that, I'd probably sing too. If I could preach like that, I'd probably preach too. If I could do, you know, the comparison junk. But God made you to be you. And only you can be you. And you won't stand in front of God one day and give an account for why you weren't more like, more like Moses. You will give an account for why you weren't more like you. And I'm not preaching at you guys. This is a journey that I went on. It was a huge journey for me, tough journey for me. When I first accepted the call to pastoral ministry, I asked my pastor, he gave me a chance to preach. And, and, and I said, well, I'd like for you to critique me afterwards. Give me some, some, some feedback. And he said, okay, I'd be glad to. And so after I brought the message that morning and went back to his office, he said, well, you had three points. You, you had an illustration for each point and that's, that's good. Um, and I said, okay, <laughs> tell me the rest of the story. He said, well, it was a little dry. Uh, the people want dynamic. The people are looking for dynamic. And he didn't, I don't think he meant to do this, but the way I heard that is I got to go find out what dynamic looks like. And I went looking for dynamic. I, I was watching television just soon after that and a, and a TV evangelist that was popular in this area back in those days, Charles Young was on TV with the Tent Revival and I watched him and, and I saw him get up there and, and he, he kind of went in this way. Brace yourself because he got a little loud and I'll try not to get too loud. Sound guys, be ready. Here we go. He would say, and go, say, sa. A little spittle coming up in the corner of his mouth. I never prayed a prayer. He said, the Holy Ghost didn't hear. So come and let me pray for you now. <laughs> See, I can do that. I know how to do that. That sounds stupid doing it, but I can do that. Soon discovered that's not me. So I started looking around and I started watching Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was just a phenomenal preacher of the word of God. And he would say, the Bible says. And so I started every time you turn around, I'd say, the Bible says. And I realized that's not me. Dr. Herbert Carter, I've mentioned Dr. Carter many times. He went to heaven this summer. He, uh, Dr. Carter was eloquent. Oh my, what an eloquent preacher. I would say God created the world, and Dr. Carter would say, and God flung with a prestigious digit of his right hand the diamonds we call stars against the black velvet of the night sky. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I won't smart enough to do that. <laughs> it took me years to get to this place that 
to say, this is who I am, and this is what I'm just going to carry on a conversation, and if somebody wants to hear it, they'll hear it. I just became a conversationalist. I don't even consider myself a public speaker. I, I'm scared to death to speak publicly. I, I haven't slept through a Saturday night in the last 50 years. I'm serious. I'm just terrified at the idea of public speaking. But I pick one of you out of the crowd and I have a conversation with you. And sometimes I'll slip up beside you and say, you were my person today. Thank you. I'm serious. But I finally realized that if I wanted to be effective for the kingdom of God, I didn't have to be Charles Young or Billy Graham or Herbert Carter. I could be Jim Wall. Is this sinking in? Be who God made you to be. Don't make the mistake of seeing others and say, man, if I was more like that, because God made you, you, and you are valuable. When you understand that because of what Jesus was willing to pay for you and because of whose you are not who you are, whose you are, and because of your usefulness for the kingdom of God, God says you are acceptable, you are valuable. Maybe it's time for you to start seeing yourself that way. Got it? There's a third thing, and I see the time. I'm going to hush. But Jim, you don't, <laughs> you don't know how I've messed up. You don't know what I've done or failed to do in my life. That's why the third part of how God sees you is so critical, and that is God sees me as forgivable. God sees me as forgivable. Say it with me. God sees me as forgivable. One more time. God sees me as forgivable. In Peter's second letter to the church, he realizes that he told them all those things in his first letter, but they didn't get this one. So he had to come back again in the second letter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. You have received mercy, he said. But Pastor Jim, you, you don't know what I've done. That, I say that's not relevant. Did you see the tense of the word received? What, what's the tense? It's past tense. It's done. It's not based on what you've done or not done. It's based on what he did and has done. You receive mercy because of Jesus. You are forgivable, and that was settled on the cross. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is respond to it. All you have to do is allow it to get past your head into your heart and start walking as a forgiven person. That's why I want you to understand. The Lord says, Isaiah 43, 25, I am he who blots out your sins for, for whose sake? For your sake? For whose sake? For his sake. For my own sake, the Lord says, and remembers your sins no more. That's huge. And remembers your sins for no more. For whose sake does he forgive you? His sake. Why? because he made you to be in relationship with him. And he's a holy God and we're an unholy people and he wants to be in relationship so he forgives us in order for him to have what he wanted when he made it, which is made us, which is relationship. That's why he forgives you. Not because you finally got it good enough, because you can't, but because he wants to be in relationship with you. Hear me, if he made us to be in relationship and we are acceptable to him, and we are valuable to him, why on earth would he throw us away? Because we messed up. It's not even 
reasonable. You confess, he forgives, he gives you a fresh start. Neither do I condemn you, he told the lady. Now go and sin no more. That's who Jesus is. God says it's over, learn from it, let it go. I have, you should too. Let me close. All right, I hear you, Jim, but how do I get there? How, how do I get there? There's two, two simple things. Profound, vital, two things. Number one is accept the new life that Jesus offers. Just accept it. The offer is there. The price has been paid. All you get to say is, thank you, Lord, for loving me first. Thank you for accepting me first. Now I love you back. I accept you back. Give me a fresh start today. That's all you have to do. But if you want to love him with all your soul, all your being, you got to commit all your soul, all your being to him. And that includes the stuff you get right and the stuff you get wrong. You bring it to him. You don't hold anything back. You're all in. I am yours. Paul even told us how to get there in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what'll happen? You might get saved. You might get a fresh start. What? You will be saved. You will be rescued from your flawed past and given a fresh start. The second thing you do is ask God to help you change your mind. Help him to change your way of thinking. We're going to spend our whole time next Sunday talking about our way of thinking and our mind. For now, just hear Romans chapter 12, verse 2. In fact, let's read it together. It's on the screens. Let's read it together. One, two, three, go. Do not change yourselves to be like the people of this world, but be changed within by a new way of thinking. Neil Anderson wrote a book a few years ago called Victory Over the Darkness. It's one of my favorites on this subject. I encourage you to pick it up sometime, Victory Over the Darkness. He tells a story about his time in the Navy when he had a captain who, uh, who was just a tyrant. He was just a mean guy. And, and, and Mr. Anderson was apparently a junior officer at that time. And so there would be times when he would get called to the bridge. And anytime he got called to the bridge, he just knew he was going to get reamed out, cussed out in front of everybody. He was going to be humiliated. It was going to be horrible. And all the junior officers just dreaded the captain saying, I need to see you on the bridge. Oh, no, 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 please, no. And, and so, it, in fact, uh, Neil Anderson said it came to the point when, when he would get the announcement, the captain wants to see you on the bridge, he'd start throwing up. He just dreaded going so bad. About halfway through his tour of duty on that ship, they got a new captain. They had a change of command. And the new captain was the polar opposite of the previous captain. This guy was affirming. He was encouraging. He would give you constructive criticism. He would tell you when you got it wrong and, and how to do it better. And, and he would help you, with, but he tended to do those things privately. Publicly, he was your cheerleader and your champion. And so when you got called to the bridge for him, it was usually to give you a high five and say, well done. But it occurred to Mr. Anderson months after this new captain had come in place that when he heard an announcement come to the bridge, he still threw up. Because somehow in his head, he knew he had a new, a new captain, but that hadn't made the journey to his heart. 
some of you traded captains a long time ago. Some of you, maybe you're doing it right now. Understand your old captain, Satan, his agenda was to steal, kill, and destroy your life. Your new captain, his name is Jesus. And he sees you as acceptable. He sees you as valuable. He sees you as forgivable. Come to him and let him love you the way he wants to. And then just love him back. Just love him back. Father, thank you for being this gracious, loving God. This heavenly father who loves his children, loves to give good gifts to his children. And yes, sometimes that means encouragement and sometimes that means challenge. Sometimes that means instruction and sometimes that means affirmation, but it's always through the lens of you see us as acceptable to you, as valuable to you, as forgivable to you. Now, would you help each one of us to begin to see ourselves that way? See ourselves the way you see us? Would you help us to change our way of thinking to your way of thinking? In Jesus' name, keep your heads bowed for just a moment. I'm not going to keep you much longer, but... My sense is that some of you sitting in this room, some of you sitting on your couch at home right now, that, that if you're honest in this moment, you don't see yourself the way I just told you God sees you. And getting there sounds like a difficult task. Maybe you've never established a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've been a Christian for decades you still see God as that evil taskmaster, that mean-spirited captain. In the quietness of this moment, you have an opportunity to say, Lord, I accept the new life you've given me. Help me to change my way of thinking. I'm going to ask you quickly, if you will, to just consider praying that prayer with me. And let a fresh start begin for you. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just me and you and Jesus for a minute. Let's pray that prayer. Jesus, I accept the new life you've given me. Now help me to change my way of thinking. See myself as acceptable, valuable, forgivable. Give me the abundant life you promised as I live out that image based in truth. In Jesus' name, Father, you know who's praying, you know what's going on in all of our hearts and minds right now. I just pray that you'd make yourself very real to us. Help us to all to understand that this is not just a teaching, this is not just theory, this is real stuff that can ultimately define our lives if we'll get it right. Help us to get it right in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.